This is Yantipoia Radio, amplifying the voices of connected government and public innovation. Hi, I'm John Wells with Gov 2.0 Radio. And with us today is Nicholas Gruen, who is former chair of the Australian Government 2.0 Task Force, which received worldwide recognition for its groundbreaking work. Nicholas is an, an economist. He's head of lateral economics. He is the former founding chair of the San Francisco-based Kaggle, the crowdsources uh, data analytic competitions, and he's also chair of the Australian Centre for Social Innovation. Welcome, Nicholas. Hi, John. Now, you gave a, uh, a very interesting and challenging presentation to the Sydney University Graduate School of Government that you called Realising Jefferson's Dream, Avoiding Schumpeter's Nightmare. And as I understood it, you were talking about Web 2.0 tools and their various associated approaches and the impact on government and on democracy. And as I understood it, you were saying that our challenge is, uh, has been and continues to be avoiding the gimmickry of the latest fad, the latest uh, cute thing. And we need to uh, head towards how new approaches might invigorate uh, the hard-won traditions of modern democratic government. Have I captured that? Uh, yeah, you have, but th- that's kind of half of it. And I, I would call that the realising Jefferson's dream part of the talk and that's what that that's what I see Gov2 as, that's what I see as Government 2.0 as which is essentially harnessing all of the amazing things that you know you might say are summed up in the idea of Wikipedia and, and open source software, harnessing all of those things to make government better that's the Jefferson's dream part. It's, it's, I call it Jefferson's dream because I think it's sort of we have to go back perhaps that far to find somebody of his eminence as excited about information and what information might be able to do for us. I, I quoted this uh, quote of Jefferson who was writing to somebody and he was talking about patents and I think Jefferson was instrumental in putting patents in the uh, U.S. Constitution. Um, he was a great fan of trying to encourage uh, the the, uh, the technical arts uh, and information flows and so on. And, and, and what Jefferson was saying was he was referring to something that economists call non-rivalrousness, which is a very dull way of saying it. Jefferson uh, put it much more compellingly and said, if I, if I tell you an idea, then I keep the idea and you've got the idea as well. It costs me nothing to give you the idea and then you can go away and replicate it uh, and use it without any harm to anyone. And he likened it to fire, to passing fire sticks around. You know, this is, a, I mean, printing was several hundred years old at this stage, but pamphlets were really only a generation or two old they got going a fair bit earlier than that, but they were. The, but the, 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 the American Revolution was run around pamphleteering, and pamphleteering was the 18th century version of blogging. Uh, so you'd put out a pamphlet, then someone would put out a rebuttal, then there would be comments going backwards and forwards in periodicals and, and, and things like that. So Jefferson was incredibly exercised about what an exciting, what an incredible, you know, no pun intended, revolutionary set of opportunities this provided. And so that was the first half of my talk. And uh, 
you know, you only have to look at Wikipedia, uh, open source software to see this avalanche of new exciting opportunities that governments have not been terribly good at taking up. So, so that's the first half of what I had to say. And then the, the next part is a somewhat more, I don't want to really call it pessimistic, but perhaps realistic, a bit of a, a bit of a um, glass of cold water, which was, is avoiding Schumpeter's nightmare. Now, Schumpeter is an economist, but much more than that, a real sort of social thinker uh, of the 20th century, uh, really the first three quarters of the 20th century. And he wrote a book that is quite famous uh, called Capitalism, Socialism and Democracy. There's a couple of chapters in there about democracy. And uh, it's odd that an economist should uh, draw people's attention to this. I don't know of any antecedents in political theory, but one of the things that Schumpeter emphasised was that democracies actually need elites. Now, that's a scary thing to say. We Elites is a dirty word, and uh, unless you're a sporting commentator, I guess. And the best way of conveying that, there's more to it than this, but the best way of getting the point across in in the most powerful way possible is to think about your local tennis club or football club or or the firm that you work for. Uh, our society relies on a division of labour to get pretty much anything done. And once you're talking about a division of labour, you're talking about elites, you're talking about people who are particularly well suited to doing certain kinds of things. And so what that part of my speech was about was to say that there is a sort of a sentimental image that maybe Web2, maybe the Internet can make us all a, a direct democracy like Athens. Uh, now, you only need to know something about Athens to know that that's really not such a, a great thing to hope for. And that was with a that was in a country that was that, that was in a, a city, an ancient city, which is the size of a of a provincial town these days. It had less than 80,000 citizens. And but, but if you think just think about it, if you just think about the, what d- direct democracy through the Internet might actually mean, think about coming home from work and going onto the internet and voting on, uh, I don't know, 20 or 30 items on you, which would come up on your computer or your smartphone, and it would say things, and, and those decisions would be things like, we have to decide, you know, we have, do you want to vote for or against increasing the capitation payment to hospitals in the country from $63.42 a night to $67.58 a night as recommended by the Remuneration Tribunal. That's a good way to explain how getting anything done in life <laughs> involves elites. It involves specialisation and picking people who really want to be part of making decisions like that. And one of the things Schumpeter was arguing was that democracy isn't worth anything much. It's basically just chaos, unless, like any other form of complex organisation, it is mediated by people who specialise and and ultimately by elites. And that then gets down to the question, well, how do we 
make sure that our elites, our governing elites, are the elites we want or the elites we, we, we would like to deserve, elites that are going to do the right thing and not exploit their position as elites. And uh, what I've said to the students in my speech was we haven't got all that far in answering that. We've done pretty well in the modern world in the last 200 years. Uh, we've done a lot better answering that question than any other civilization in history, but there's no quantum leap that has been produced in that by the internet, and, and it's possible to argue that in some ways the internet actually makes that task harder, uh, and uh, that leads to, 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 to reflection on the way in which uh, to get attention on the internet is 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 uh, you know the formula for getting attention on the internet is not un, not all that different from the formula for getting attention on talkback radio and you can ask Rush Limbaugh how he gets attention and it isn't by being coolly deliberative and helpful to the democratic process. So Nicholas, you're talking just towards the end there about uh, elites uh, and the democratic process. Um, there's a lot of talk about how public organisations can better engage with citizens to build more creative and prosperous communities. Is it your view as an economist that that's a nice idea? At the end of the day, it's window dressing, or is it starting to show signs of working, being able to use more open collaborative 2.0 uh, channels to, en to engage communities? I think a lot of the things that need to be said about agencies engaging have been said. Uh, you need you, the, the internet provides a fantastic platform for doing this efficiently, enabling quite visibly enabling anyone who who you can manage to inform that this consultation is on to come and discuss, uh, come and put their views on a website. Uh, for me, I find still I find that. Not terribly exciting. I mean, it's a good thing to do, but the, the stuff that sort of really excites me is real engagement and real engage. And governments are not good at real engagement. What re what I mean by real engagement is the ability to get on a website and ask someone, well, why did you do this? Or to say, well, look, I think your arguments here are are interesting, but you know, can you justify what you're doing there? You'll find if you try and do that, that uh, government agencies are not very well equipped to do any of that. And that's partly because they're just people doing their day jobs there, kind of quite a few people in an agency who will be doing a particular thing. But the, there are more structural reasons for why it's hard to get real engagement, because uh, let's say that a decision has been made and the decision is, as, for instance, happened in Victoria, that they would establish a thing called Ultranet. And Ultranet was a, a kind of a social networking service. It cost about $60 million, I think. And it connected up any student and any teacher in the Victorian uh, education system. Now, let's say you went onto a website and you said, well, why have you done this? Well, a public servant may not know why they've done it, what they've got to go on is that there's a second reading speech, if it's an act, or some speeches made by their political boss in Parliament or somewhere else, a business lunch or something. 
And those reason, that reasoning might not be terribly bulletproof. It, it will be full of a few slogans and, and uh, you know, there'll be some people with views that are, haven't been completely, uh, re, you know, I mean, they, there'll be some people who said this is a bad idea for these reasons. What's mm. the public servant to say when confronted with those ideas? It's mm. not an easy, you know, they're not really, they haven't been set up to be in a position to be part of that conversation. And if that's the case, then what are you doing on this website? If you're a citizen, mm. you want to engage on this subject, you want to debate on this subject, well, there's no one there to really have the debate on behalf of the mm. government. So mm. we start out and we're sort of all enthusiastic about it, and I think it's a, a good aspiration. I'm not speaking against it. But in fact, if you kind of ask some hard questions about how we're set up for this, we're not actually set up for it. We're set up for something that looks like engagement, but isn't really fully full engagement. Mm. And of course, a lot of people would argue that there's a, uh, a huge leap between conventional consultation Absolutely. And, and, and actual and you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, engagement. So you know, coming back to some uh, economic basics of supply and demand, you can supply all the engagement tools you like. My question is, is, yeah. is there actually, do you think, demand out in the community for some of this? Is there what some people are starting to call Citizen 2.0? Is, is, do, does the community, do citizens want to be engaged? Or do they just say, look, I voted for you four years ago. It's, it's your job to go and, and run the country. Yeah, well, that's a great question. And it takes me back to this idea of elites. I don't think it's all that exciting to engage with the community. Let's say you're doing an engagement on hospital beds and treatments uh, or something like that. Now, if you want to engage with the whole community, I mean, if you want to engage with me on hospital beds, I don't know much about hospital beds. I haven't, you know, our son went to hospital every now and again with asthma and that's been my son. You know, I haven't, I'm not well versed in uh, the politics or economics of health. So, I mean, I might be quite useful in a conversation about it, but I'm not that exercised about it and I'm not that well informed about it. So if you want to have a kind of an engagement with, in quotes, the community, it'll be one kind of engagement. It's certainly the kind of engagement that a government department needs to be able to show it has been through, but it isn't really because you're getting the community's idea the community's ideas in the way you might have got the community's ideas in the in the assembly in Athens um it's because you're opening it up for conversation and then you are inviting people who claim <laughs> to know something about it mm. and and some of them will honestly admit that they've got an an axe to grind and that's fine that's part of democracy and all those interested people, either interested in an intellectual sense and often interested in more than an intellectual sense, in a financial sense or, a, you know, in, in terms of their particular self-interest, then they come into the conversation. Now, mm. I don't regard that as problematic. It's not That is not a particularly democratic thing. It's a participatory thing. These people aren't necessarily incredibly representative. We don't do a lot, but, but they are it's really good to have that conversation because they will have views that it's important for the system to engage with, mm. uh, you know, and the views of the nurses and the doctors and the public servants and the politicians, they're well looked after. <laughs> They've got good access to the system and, and, and they, they get, they get a good bit of engagement. Mm. Uh, and so you're trying to bring other people in 
And that brings me to this point about elites. These people who are trying to participate, they're a, a new potential policy elite, that is people who know quite a bit about this subject and want to engage on it and want to give their time, some out of self-interest, many out of public interest. And so, so I think all that's great, but, it's not, but, but do you see my point that it's not exactly consulting the community? It's consulting people who put their hands up and say, I want to be listened to on this point. And then we need a process for getting out of that sort of soup the, re the real elite, the people who can really help us come up with better policies. So, so in a sense, you're separating out random opinion from informed experience. Yes, and, I, and one of my one of my um, little slogans is, um, or one of my little labels is "Vox Pop Democracy." This idea that it's democratic to for a TV channel to turn up at a supermarket, uh, stuff a microphone into somebody's face, and say, uh, "What do you think about uh, the latest uh, sentencing of a pedophile or something that's nice and emotive that they know next to nothing about?" But the question is asked in such a way that they feel they might like to have an opinion about it. Mm. And that's supposed to be kind of democratic. Well, it's not it's nothing really. It's it's a kind of a, just a piece of random excitement. True. And and yet it's quite challenging, I would think, for a lot of people working inside the public sector uh, in Western democracies, because we talk about democracy 2.0, but it, it, to a very large extent, it's broken down into what you might call politics 2.0 yeah. versus public policy 2.0. Because, right. you know, if, if people are out through any platform expressing their view, politicians want to hear that. That's the key to a vote. Yet it's not necessarily the key to good public policy. Yeah, that's right. And that's the that's always the tension. And in some senses, that was Schumpeter's point writing in the 1940s. Uh, he argued that a democracy, a modern democracy, was a kind of a mediation between an elite, and now he's using the term in a way that I've steered clear of, but I may as well come clean here. Uh, he's saying a democracy, firstly, a democracy is impossible if the real elite in the society, people with a lot of power and a lot of money, don't have an implicit bargain that they're not going to fight each other physically, they're going to have a, a, a stable and peaceful means of passing government from one faction to another. So that's the first part of democracy, that it, it's an eminent, it, it, a democracy um, presupposes the rule of law. And if you can get, you know, if, if uh, you can get a whole lot of people voting for you, if you don't, if, if that isn't in the context of the rule of law, then you, you don't have a democracy. So it's in the, in the context of the rule of law and peacefulness and an elite and, and, and Schumpeter would argue that you need an elite, you need the powerful people in the community to have an implicit agreement, whether they're Republicans or Democrats or in Australia's terms, liberals or, or, or Labor people, that they all implicitly agree that if power legitimately passes to their opponents, they might not be very happy about it, but they're not going to go to war about it. So that's the first part of democracy. The second part of the democracy is to say that democracy is a system of elite governance in which the elite that seeks to govern or the faction of the elite that governs 
is the faction that went to the people and got the people to say, yes, you're the part of the elite that we want to govern us. So, so that's Schumpeter's idea of what a democracy is. And it's a sort of shocking. <laughs> it's, it's kind of shocking for us to think about that because we're, we're kind of full of, of rather more romantic notions. But I think it's, it's a pretty good corrective to some of those romantic notions. And it gets you focused on, you know, what the, say the difference is between politics 2.0 and government 2.0. And my argument would be that the net and Web 2.0 and all those sorts of things can really be helpful in the government part of that and in the politics part of that, which is working out which faction gets to be government and which faction gets to be the opposition. We kind of attended to those problems, for better or worse, in the 19th century and the first few decades of the 20th century where developed countries um, uh, where they developed Western countries evolved universal suffrage, uh, universal voting to make those decisions. Now, what can the internet add to that? Well, it's a a sort of hypercharged, hyperconnected, hyperpresent means of discussion and deliberation and voting if you want, but it doesn't change the fundamental point that what's really important here is that you get the uh, the, the, is that you get the consent of the governed to which which bunch of people to govern them they're going to choose. Uh, and but you would, uh, but yeah, you would so, agree uh, perhaps that one of the great changes uh, in recent years has been that where once upon a time economic freedom quality of life was a key factor in in for most democratic societies across the world. What's happened in more recent years is a new type of freedom. It's a freedom of ideas, a freedom of knowledge and openness of knowledge. Has that not changed the ground rules? Well, no, because I think those that freedom of ideas was alive and well in the late 19th century. And that's in fact, I should have added that as one of the preconditions of democracy. It's a precondition of democracy that unless you're preaching, you know, hatred of some kind and inciting to violence, that you're allowed to say whatever you like and that you're allowed to persuade others that what you think is true. So that I would, I think I would argue, I'm happy to be argued out of this, but I would say that the internet therefore just kind of makes more efficient and more cheap that process of of public deliberation. I think your question leads me to to, um, say, no, no, that's that's exactly what I mean, that... um, freedom of expression uh, is a precondition for democracy and that that's what that's what we had pretty much in the 19th century and that's how we got democracy getting back to economists understanding of the public good and public goods that I've heard you talk about yeah um, I think what has changed in the last hundred years is the central public goods to yeah. build and enable a healthy society were very much economic very much to do with infrastructure uh, and the like. And while that's still true, it's in a classic Maslow sense, uh, certainly in Western societies, we seem to have moved along to where uh, the public goods that we, you know, we take for granted those public goods and what we now aspire to are participation, at least the opportunity for uh, collaboration uh, in how we we run our, our society. Yeah. 
the kinds of public goods that, that defined quality of life previously tended to be enabled by government. They were they they might have been undertaken by the private sector. Yeah. But now a lot of the public goods we we value are quite intangible. Have we moved to the point where you know our sense of public good is a little different? Yeah, yeah. I think we haven't figured that out yet, but that's one of the things that I one of the things that struck me when I started thinking about web 2 is that uh well I'll sort of take you through my reasoning. My first reasoning was we started this interview talking about uh, Thomas Jefferson and non-rivalrousness, this idea that an idea um, doesn't cost you anything to pass around, whereas, you know, if you've got a, a cookie that you want to eat, passing it around, if you pass it to somebody, you don't have have the cookie anymore. That means, and this is what Jefferson was getting at without using the jargon, that means that ideas are potential public goods. Uh, one, you know, you can just pass them around and they, you know, they get better and better with uh, use, whereas a car or a cookie gets worse and worse the more people want to use it. Um, so, so that's, uh, I was sort of thinking about that and then I, then I thought to myself, well, one of the things that's going on here is that we have, if you think of Linux software, Wikipedia, uh, Google, Facebook, Twitter, all of those things are um, somebody will build or start something. Linus puts his uh, first kernel of Linux up on a website and says, "Here's a here's a um, uh, here's something I've uh, built. Please help me out. Send me a patch." Uh, Google puts up search, and all sorts of amazing things happen behind the scenes. And on these, and and, and likewise, Wikipedia. And on these sites uh, are built, the community builds a public good. Now, a public good, this is a bit like a freeway or a bridge or something. <laughs> it's pretty incredible. But the community just builds an encyclopedia. Bang, something which was a private good and sold by Encyclopedia Britannica is built by the community and becomes a community asset and it's available for free and it's available for everyone and the government didn't have anything to do with it. It was a kind of an emanation of the human spirit, if you'll allow me to become a little bit over-enthusiastic. So that was mm. an amazing thing. That was a kind of an amazing thing to, to, to think about. And then I realised that there was something more to be said, and that was that although economists never talked about this, and I, I came up with a label for this, an, an economic label for this, um, called emergent public goods. These are goods that sort of assemble themselves. The government doesn't do it. Um, and even if the, even if a company or, or a foundation sets up a platform, the, the public good then builds itself on the platform if you think about Wikipedia. So I think to myself, well, it's amazing. You know, economists haven't written about this at all. And then I thought, well, actually, the founder of modern economics, a guy called Adam Smith, wrote a whole book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which was about um, the sort of ethical codes which enable us now to walk into a shop, buy a thing, exchange the money. No one's in any fear that they're going to get ripped off. Um, nobody has a physical fight over the change. Our whole lives go on like this uh, because of this, the, this ethos. So Adam Smith was actually writing about public goods. This was a book that he published 17 years before he published The Wealth of Nations, which we know him for, he was actually arguing that private goods 
are built on public goods. That is that our ability to have a market, not to fight over the change, uh, all of these things are part of a kind of common inheritance, a common uh, cultural inheritance, uh, which is many, many hundreds of years being built. And um, so that's a remarkable thing. And then I remembered one other thing, which is even more remarkable, which is that uh, well, well, that, that, that this idea of a public good, the emergent public good, our species is different from every other species in this way. It built itself an emergent public good. And that public good, I'm using it now, it's language. Uh, it didn't get built by any government. It got built in the process of living lives. People just gradually built this thing, uh, which they always, which they continue to use and pass on. And the remarkable thing is that when Adam Smith died, he instructed uh, his, ex his literary executor, who was David Hume, the philosopher, to burn all his all his papers, um, all his unfinished papers. But he left some instructions that a few of these papers were to be uh, kept and not burnt. And one of them was a treatise on the history of astronomy, and the other was a treatise on language, on the emergence of language. So somehow Adam Smith kind of knew all this stuff, um, but modern economists don't know any of it. Nicholas, I'd, I'd like to take that thinking and draw it back to something that's quite topical at the moment, which is open data. Mm. Uh, you said at one stage that uh, governments are not good at taking up some of these uh, new ways of thinking. Yep. You hear commentators saying uh, that uh, it, around open data that some of the best opportunities uh, for creating new new resources um, yep. tend to call for data to be made available, whereas, of course, within the public sector in some quarters, there is a tendency to hang on to, to data, to be a custodian of you know public information, and in some cases, to want to be able to then pass that on, to sell that on. Uh, mm. You know, How do we help governments be more entrepreneurial to overcome the idea that data is uh, intrinsically valuable not if you hang on to it, but in yeah. fact, if you release it to create yeah. new possibilities, new public goods. Yeah, I mean, I think we've done a reasonable job of convincing governments of that at the highest level. We've done a much less good job of convincing individual agencies of it. Uh, and I guess people at the moment have a kind of an instinctive sense of proprietary ownership in each department. Uh, so there's a huge benefit to doing all those things. And, you know, this is a democracy, so all we can do is keep saying it. And uh, amazingly enough, eventually these things uh, happen. So we can get frustrated while we wait, but they'll happen. And uh, if people want to get themselves on the right side of history, they know what to do. <laughs> so to close uh, this far-ranging conversation that I think we could continue uh, for we some could. time, uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you today, Nicholas. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, John. So thanks for listening. Until next time, bye for now.